listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Iran has agreed with world powers to curb its nuclear program. U.S. stocks rise and the dollar slips as U.S. retail data released might delay the Fed's move. Asian stock futures rise before the China GDP. Because of this deal, the international community will be able to verify that the Islamic Republic of Iran will not develop a nuclear weapon. Every pathway to a nuclear weapon is cut off. And the inspection and transparency regime necessary to verify that objective will be put in place. This deal is not built on trust. It is built on verification. Yeah, that's uh, President Obama talking about the new agreement uh, by Iran with world powers to curb its nuclear program. We'll have a discussion on markets this morning with Kingston Securities' Dickie Wong and uh, after that independent energy news provider Platts, Paul Bartholomew will talk about uh, commodities, especially steel in China. Enzio von File, our regular guest host, is back today. Good morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Edita. Enzio, in terms of the Iran deal, how much of a landmark is this? Well, I think it has, still has to be passed by the UN by the middle of December. In other words, the UN has to start seeing if Iran is sticking to the deal and whether the others believe that Iran is sticking to the deal. I don't think the thing is concluded at all, frankly. I think that they've concluded negotiations, but I think that we still have to wait for some time to see any results, particularly the price of oil, which I believe will only increase, if at all, or decrease, I'm sorry, as of about the middle of 2016 um, because it still t- is going to take some time for Iran to implement this agreement. Yes, indeed. This accord took uh, seven nations almost two years to negotiate, uh, but it now depends on President Barack Obama's ability to defend it against efforts from Capitol Hill to Jerusalem to kill it. So uh, what does this mean about sanctions? Here's what President Obama said. Because of this deal, the international community will be able to verify that the Islamic Republic of Iran will not develop a nuclear weapon. Every pathway to a nuclear weapon is cut off. And the inspection and transparency regime necessary to verify that objective will be put in place. This deal is not built on trust. It is built on verification. Inspectors will have 24-7 access to Iran's key nuclear facilities. As Iran takes steps to implement this deal, It will receive relief from the sanctions that we put in place because of Iran's nuclear program. If Iran violates the deal, all these sanctions will snap back into place. I will veto any legislation that prevents the successful implementation of this deal. I welcome a robust debate in Congress on this issue, and I welcome scrutiny of the details of this agreement. 
Oil rose after an initial decline as investors concluded that the return of sanctioned Iranian crude will be gradual, to Enzio's earlier point. West Texas intermediate crude for August delivery gained 84 cents or 1.6 percent to $53.04 a barrel, and Brent oil uh, rose 66 cents to $58.38. But what does the deal actually mean for oil prices going forward? Here's a Bloomberg's Alex Steele reporting on Bloomberg Markets. We saw oil prices actually close higher on the day. Uh, Energy Aspects was saying that, look, we could see oil fall $5 because of this only if other factors come into play. Uh, If something happens in Greece, there's a setback. If there is a fall in the Chinese stock market, because remember, the markets are still oversupplied. So it's not just Iran. You'd have to have a perfect storm of events uh, that would happen. There are two big concerns when it comes to this deal. That's why you're not seeing price reaction. One second. We saw we see Brent here up, right? Mm-hmm. So I get that West Texas Intermediate doesn't have a lot to do with what's going on in Iran, but Brent should react to more supply coming online, right? If right, and that brings the question, oil, how much supply are we really going to see, which leads us to the two big issues. First off, can the U.S. President, or President Obama, give international oil companies reassurance that they can invest, that those investment sanctions will be lifted no matter who takes the White House in 2016? Will these companies invest billions and billions of dollars just on continuum six-month presidential waivers, which is what it will have to be if Congress does not repeal the investments sanctions. So in terms of oil coming on like tomorrow, that's not going to happen. Uh, you're looking at the back half of 2016, maybe the front half. And in terms of how much, I've seen estimates pretty much all over the place, as low as 240,000 barrels a day and as high as 800,000 barrels a day. Uh, but none of that is uh, going to come on tomorrow. None of that's going to come on immediately or even right away to come January 2016. I do have some of it floating, though, Yes, ready to go in tankers. This is fascinating. So literally there is oil sitting in tankers uh, off the coast of Iran. The question is how much? So Energy Aspects put it's between 20 and 25 million barrels, but says that 90% of that is condensate. That's super, super, super lightly refined oil. So not a lot of people are really going to want to use that. Other estimates are much higher at 40 million barrels. So how much uh, actual oil is there uh, that can be sold and who's going to buy it? What are you thinking, Enzio? Front half or back half of 2016 till we see a decline in prices? Back half, because I don't think that the global economic time, the global economic clock is so fabulous that there's a reason for demand-driven increases in the price of oil. And I think that once this stuff does come on stream, assuming, of course, that people agree that Iran is implementing, then the prices will have to sort of say, so I think that they're just going to stay soft and soggy. All right. Well, sales at uh, American retailers dropped in June. Uh, you appending optimism over the strength of a rebound in consumer spending and spurring traders to push back bets on the timeline for rate hikes. Global equities have rallied, rallied to their highest level this month and signs that the sell-off in Chinese stocks uh, has been tamed after Greece's prime minister accepted austerity measures. The Nasdaq jumped two-thirds of a percent to 5,100 
104. The Dow climbed 75 points to 18,053. And the S&P 500 also finished just under half a percent higher at 2,108. The crises in Greece and China had diverted attention from U.S. corporate earnings, economic data, and the outlook for monetary policy. Investors are now looking to Fed, uh, Fed Chair uh, Janet Yellen's testimony to Congress, which will start today. Bloomberg asked Mohammed El Aryan of the Alliance Group what he expects from her speech. An update on the economy, in particular how she sees wage growth. And that's a key element. Um, the Fed officials will not be comfortable about hiking rates until they see better prospects for wage growth. So that's the first issue. Second, how she sees the path for interest rate hikes. I think she will confirm the notion that this will be the loosest tightening in the history of the Fed. And finally, she's got to battle a lot of political issues. Um, this is a Congress that is much more intrusive or, or is seeking to be much more intrusive in Fed affairs than previous Congresses. So she's going to be playing defense on the political front. Could China's tamed stock market bite the economy? Yesterday on Money for Nothing, we discussed the issue of China tipping the world into a recession. Mohammed El Aryan says it could happen, but it won't. Mohammed, yesterday, Rushir Sharma, the head of emerging markets at Morgan Stanley, he said that China could tip the world into a recession. What's your reaction? It could, but it won't. So the 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 scenario for tipping tipping the world into recession is trying to lose controls of its financial system, not just the stock market, but also its shadow banking system, and that causes a major setback to the Chinese economy, which then translates to a major setback to the global economy. It's a possibility, but I do not do not think it's a probability. I think China has a lot of tools to avert that. Now, they're not, it's not very neat in the sense that they are retarding their march towards economic liberalization, but they can maintain control of their economy and they can limit the spillover effects to the rest of the world. All right, let's bring in our first guest this morning, Dickie Wong, who is the executive director at Kingston Securities. Good morning, Dickie. Good morning. Dickie, you know, Mohammed El Aryan's comment is a stark contrast from that of Ruchir Sharma, who told Bloomberg uh, the other day that China will lead the world into recession. What do you think? Well, with China, uh, government, um, they can um, sustain some kind of um, 7% round uh, growth of GDP. I don't think this will happen simply. Um, honestly speaking, um, to me, if the Chinese government wants to target on something, wants to do something, nothing is impossible. So you can see they use various kinds of no matter monetary policy tools and order, all other things to stop the market plummet. So um, what I will believe now, um, after the recent rebound from previous low on um, last Wednesday, I think the stock market like um, the Shanghai Composite around 4,000 and um, the Hang Seng Index around 25,000 and also the X-Share Index around um, at this moment, like now. I think it's uh, some kind of um, not equilibrium, I will say this word, because um, the stock market is always sentimental. Um, so um, sometimes people fear fearful, then um, the stock market dropped quite a lot on last Wednesday. But I, I 
the last Wednesday, the the, the low at like um, the Hang Seng Index dropped below 23,000. That's it. That's the, the lowest point this year. That will be the lowest point this year. But um, to me, uh, I think there are some, uh, so many tools like um, various um, monetary policy tools to keep um, not the only stuff to stop market, but uh, to keep liquidity appropriate and uh, credit growth. So I think this, um, like, uh, yeah, they will announce the GDP data. I think we're around 6.9%. Um, that's uh, primarily Kachang said long, long time ago. That's the target. And, and I, I think that um, this target will be achievable. All right, Dicky. Uh, I'd like to bring Enzio into this. I mean, Enzio, you know, despite sort of uh, the government being able to tame stocks, uh, China's Chinese stocks are still overvalued, wouldn't you say? Yes, well, but I... Oh, yeah. Enzio, Dickie, go, ahead. go ahead. Okay, thank you. I think that they are, but it's a little bit academic to tell a farmer in Hebei province that the stock on Tencent is overvalued. Um, they are lemmings. 80% of that stock market in China is run by retail. And so I don't think that the valuation measures which we use and which we perhaps blindly believe in, look at Chinese numbers and how unreliable they can be, that those indicators of valuation perhaps are very misleading. Dickie? Well, um, to me, honestly speaking, um, if you talk about valuation, um, that's totally, um, I, I won't say useless, but if you talk about valuation in this kind of sentimental market, um, like uh, emerging markets, that's not always the case. Uh, because if you talk about the, the simple valuation now, okay, it's Shanghai Composite Index, 17 times PE, not that high because it's definitely lower than S&P 500 index right now. But if we're talking about the index, we can see most of the index key component stocks of financial shares. Financial shares are trading at extremely low valuation, especially talking about um, those banking stocks, the state-owned banks. Uh, but yeah, we all know there's some kind of problem like um, shadow banking problem and etc. And also um, the H share, uh, I mean, the shares traded in Hong Kong, the China enterprises traded in Hong Kong, are definitely uh, have a lower valuation now, nine times PE. So I, I do agree, uh, no matter what, the Asia market is not cheap at all. Even um, the, the down the more than um, actually um, 40, 30% for China composite from the peak just two, three weeks ago. But I will say, why not buy the H share? Because the H share is not only trading at single digital PE, and just like you, you, uh, 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 um, uh, buying a a, um, a discount handbag, the same, exactly the same handbag, but with 30% discount, so why not? Dickie, why are, is that discount of the H shares to the A shares in China? Well, this is always uh, a question that no one can answer, because, yeah, as we all know, the um, Asian market uh, has been dominated by most of the uh, local uh, investors, but the Hong Kong stock market just facing everywhere. Um, everywhere um, money then flow into the Hong Kong stock market. There's no capital, um, I mean, um, requirement at all. So I think the Hong Kong stock market is trading at some kind of um, even more, not reasonable, but um, can reflect the, the, the moment. 
Like, okay, um, Dickie, so a, a, an easier question perhaps. How much is the, the Chinese stock market and thus the Hong Kong stock market going to go up by the end of this year? 10%, 20%, 30%? What do you think? All of this is speaking, um, after the recent rebound, like uh, even the Hang Tang Index has, been, has, been rebound, has rebound um, like um, 10% in the, um, just only three, four days. I think it's, that's about it. And uh, I think an already peak. Uh, no matter the Asia market, also um, the Hong Kong stock market. So I, I think that um, if you talk about from now to the year end, um, I, I do see some kind of volatility um, in, um, in September and October also. So, yeah, that's about it. Because when the Chinese government um, told us um, 4,500 points for the Shanghai Composite Index, Nothing um, at, at that moment you can sell the single piece of stock if this um, the index trade below that point. So what I believe now is 4,500. It's, it's definitely the key resistance level, so less than 10% upside. All right, Dickie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Dickie Wong, and he is the executive director at Kingston Securities. Uh, time to take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is up four-tenths of a percent this morning to 20,479. And uh, Australia's ASX index is down just slightly uh, 0.19% to 5,561. Well, we'll be back to talk more about steel prices versus those of cabbage in China. That's right after this. Why are you hiding? You think you'll be all right by hiding your drug problem? Prolonged drug abuse causes more harm. Stop putting it off. Seek help now. There is a way as long as you want to quit. Call 1-86-186 or message at 9-8-186-186. Many people and organizations can help. Don't hide yourself. Seek help now. Stand firm. Knock drugs out. The time is now 8.20 a.m. and you're listening to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Well, copper futures added uh, 0.1% ahead of uh, the uh, incoming uh, Chinese data, the GDP figures that is uh, about to be released later today. And Chinese steel prices have plunged on weak domestic demand and crude oil production is down on and on track to fall 1 to 2% in 2015. Our next guest is usually in Australia, but uh, today he visits Hong Kong. Let's bring in Paul Bartholomew, who is the managing editor of Australia's Platts. Good morning, Paul. Hi, good morning, Renita. So, Paul, uh, how has the steel market been responding uh, to fluctuations, you know, on the Shanghai Composite? Um, yeah, well, I think it's, it's, it's become an increasingly sort of sentiment-driven market. Um, we see that a lot with uh, what's going on in some of the, the, the futures prices around uh, rebar and, uh, and iron ore and everything. And I think it's just a, it's just a, a bigger example of, of that. So last week we had we had sort of iron ore prices going up when uh, when the Shanghai Composite went up and then going down again. So very very sort of sensitive to what was sort of going on. So it's just all part of that. Uh, I think you know huge. In influence of retail investors in, in China now. Uh, 
Now, you know, before we delve into a few of the other questions, uh, you know, the discussion this morning, could you explain to our listeners why commodities like iron ore and uh, copper are so correlated with China? Yeah, well, China's still the, still the biggest buyer, and it sets the spot prices of both, you know, iron ore and, and coking coal. And, uh, you know, demand has just really sort of um, um, sort of tailed off. Prices have really tailed off. And I think, I think it's all to do with the fact that just the, you know, the China's um, domestic economy is slowing, and the property sector in particular, which is a huge consumer of steel, I think it's responsible for about 50% of all steel consumption, um, has just got this huge overhang at the moment and prices are way down and they're not building as many new apartments as, as they used to be. And this all has a big knock-on effect on steel. And, of course, in the case of iron ore and, and to a certain extent, metallurgical coal, there's, there's an oversupply at the moment. Um, you know, the Australians in particular and the Brazilians, uh, they, you know, they've been looking, they've been thinking China would just keep growing and growing forever, and it, and it, and it hasn't. It's, um, in fact, I think iron ore imports over the first half of this year are actually down about 1%. Uh, same, you know, um, crude steel production is also down around about that sort of level. And, um, yeah, I don't think they were expecting that. I think they kept thinking, you know, it was going to go on and on and just grow grow forever. You saw so many presentations of iron ore companies and mining companies where they'd always show you slides of, um, you know, China's going to build a new Qingdao every six months and this kind of thing. And it's just, just not happened, really. Enzio, uh, Paul says that uh, cabbage is currently cheaper than steel in China. What do you make of that? Well, my wife always tells me not to eat cabbage, so I can't really comment on that. But what I could comment on or ask about is not cabbage imports, Paul, but steel imports into China. They seem to have, in my years of covering China, been quite a good lead indicator as to where things are headed. When do you see a turning point? When do you see steel imports into China picking up on a year-on-year basis? Yeah, well, the big story really with, with Chinese steel has actually been the exports because of um, because the domestic demand is, is so weak and, the, and, and capacity is, is so high still. Steel making capacity is, is very high. They've had to look to sort of off, offload some of this excess capacity that they can't absorb domestically. So they've um, been exporting a huge amount, which has obviously been kind of hampering other people's steel markets and causing a lot of consternation. So last year, they, uh, China exported about over 90 million tonnes of steel, so over sort of 10% of its uh, crude steel production. Now, the Chinese government don't really uh, like the state of affairs, and they've tried to sort of, uh, you know, um, um, put in a, or they, they actually removed a, a rebate um, tax or, uh, on one thing to try and uh, dissuade all these uh, exports, but it hasn't really happened. The Chinese always kind of have to fi- find a way of exporting. Um, so I think May was about an over, nearly 10 million tonnes, and that was like the fourth highest uh, monthly total ever. So, so this exports are still happening, but there's a lot of aid, anti-dumping cases around yeah. the world. India's mm. lifted its sort of you know import uh, tariffs and stuff. So, but but it takes a long time for that to flow through to the system. And in the meantime, you know, China always finds a way somehow of of kind of you know getting their steel out of the country. Um, but that that's you know it's, if they didn't have that um, export outlet, then obviously all that steel would have to somehow or other find a home within China. Uh, there isn't much of a home for it at the moment, so that would sort of depress prices even more and that would have a sort of knock-on effect of commodity prices. Paul, uh, you know, these anti-dumping cases uh, that uh, might be in the pipeline, how long would you say they're going to take to materialise? 
Yeah, I mean, well, I come from Australia, and we're notoriously slow at getting these things underway. So just, uh, you know, they can take anything from sort of, you know, 12, 12 months to, um, to, to um, you know, to actually start having any impact. Um, I think the US and ca- Canada and other countries can move a bit more sort of quickly. But, um, you know, it could. I'm not expecting to see any great impact of those sort of uh, dumping measures, probably not for at least 12 months. And, uh, and, then, and then, you know, the China typically finds loopholes of ways of getting the steel out of the country, like by adding certain other things to their steel mm. to, you know, to, to bypass certain tariffs and things. So, uh, so or, they can classify it as some sort of alloy or something else. Exactly, yeah. So whereas in the past they, they added this stuff called boron, and now they're adding something called chromium. So there's just ways of, of getting it out. And also a lot of it's, um, it's quite difficult to monitor because if you look at the trade stats, it says it's coming in from an unknown country, which typically means a trading company. So it's, it's a bit harder to sort of, you know, say, well, that's definitely coming from China. So it, it does take a while, but there is, there's, a, there's a lot of cases. But then at the same time, China has its own anti-dumping um, investigations that are currently underway. They're looking at, you know, Japanese imports, for example. And, uh, Paul, are we talking just steel, all steel in general? Is there a difference between hot-rolled steel, cold-rolled steel, you know, steel ingots and so forth? Yeah. Yeah, it depends on the sort of product. So at the moment in Australia, we're, we're looking at Chinese rebar, which is the steel that goes into, you know, you see sticking out of concrete when they're making buildings. Very, very much a commodity product. I mean, in Europe at the moment, the European Commission are looking at cold rolled coil and plate coming in from China. So, that, yeah, it is a bit specific to, to certain pr- um, products. What, what you often see happen is when the Chinese think there's going to be an anti-dumping case, they try and get as much in as, as, as people, while they can. Okay, I think Enzio has a quick question before we wrap up. Well, when do you see the Chinese steel demand stabilizing and thus turning up domestically? Uh, it's really difficult to say. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you look at the big iron ore miners like BHP, Billet and Rio Tinto, they've been talking about, um, you know, China's going to keep growing up to crude steel production, um, you know, sort of peak around over 1 billion tonnes a year by 2025, 2030. I think that's a huge overestimation. I think there's an argument to say China's already reached peak demand. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Paul. That's Paul Bartholomew. He is the managing editor at Platts Australia. Time to take a quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is up four tenths of a percent to twenty thousand four hundred and sixty-nine. Australia's ASX two hundred index is up six tenths of a percent to five thousand five hundred and ninety-eight, and Sol's Kospi up eight tenths of a percent to two thousand and seventy-six. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.09 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 123.31 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 11 cents. Gold is currently valued at $1,155 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $58.73. All right, so Enzio, here we are at the end of the show. We've got uh, GDP numbers coming out of China. What else should we be keeping our eyes on? I think you want to be looking at going long on China, keeping an eye on the particularly the domestic demand story in China, because I think it will be stabilizing. As Dickie was saying earlier on today, the dollar will continue strengthening. I think one wants to keep an eye, obviously, on the fact that the IMF is, is saying that it wants to not help Greece on the bailout. It's a little bit of a surprising thing after all these months of negotiations that the IMF all of a sudden turns around and says, well, actually, guys, it doesn't look so great over there. Maybe we shouldn't be helping. So I think that's going to be a big item and also how Chipras actually copes domestically. So basically, I'm looking at long dollar, long China. 
China, long India, long Europe, short euro, short oil, short steel, short iron ore. All right. Thank you, Enzio. Enzio von Feil is an investment strategist at Private Capital and a regular guest host on Money for Nothing. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition. The weather forecast for today, uh, there'll be sunny periods and isolated showers. It will be very hot. The temperature right now is 30 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 78%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Top U.S. Republicans and some Democrats have expressed skepticism about an historic nuclear deal with Iran, saying it doesn't safeguard American security interests. Some in Congress have already said they're prepared to reject the agreement because it doesn't comprehensively halt Tehran's enrichment process. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, John Boehner, says the deal could even fuel a nuclear arms race. It's going to hand a dangerous regime, billions of dollars in sanctions relief while paving the way for a nuclear run. And this isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It's not a partisan issue at all. It's about right versus wrong. And we're going to do everything we can to get to the details. And if, in fact, it's as bad a deal as I think it is at this moment, we'll do everything we can to stop it. The mainland economy is expected to have expanded 6.8% in the second quarter of this year. The official figure will be released shortly. If the forecast is correct, it will be the slowest growth rate since the first quarter of 2009 during the fallout from the global financial crisis. The economy grew by just 6.2% back then. Eric Tollefson is an analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit. The EIU is forecasting 6.8% growth year-on-year for the quarter, which is marginally lower than the Chinese government's stated goal of 7% more or less for 2015. Even though there were marginally